I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We've got a very brief passage this afternoon. When we initially started our um, afternoon worship services, my intent was to keep this a little more simpler, a little shorter, like 20 minutes. Just know it's, it's always a long, longer day and we come and, um, and also as we smell the wonderful food from the crock pots, we start to get a little hungry. And so um, I, I really have failed in keeping my sermons to 20 minutes um, since we started these, but I am going to do my best um, today to keep this short and simple. It's a small passage, 46 through 48, who is the greatest. Um, we've come to really the final accounts of Jesus's Galilean ministry. Chapter 9 has been focused on the question, who is Jesus? And uh, the answer is that he's the glorious and majestic Messiah. Peter could actually say that. He declared that, and the disciples agreed with it, and yet they prove their ignorance over and over again in the way that they respond. And they'll show that very clearly in this passage. They didn't at- know what he actually meant, or, or at least what it meant regarding his ministry currently. Uh, the irony of this passage is that it follows after the display of the majesty of Christ and his authority, right? We saw him casting out a demon that his, other, that his disciples were unable to cast out. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, revealing his glorious majesty to three of the disciples, and then he begins, or he's immediately confronted by a father who's crying out on behalf of his son, who's been tormented by a demon, and finds out that the nine disciples who had been at the foot of the mountain were unable uh, to cast that demon out. And so they, uh, so the father looks to Jesus to bring healing, and Jesus does. And he says it was due to their lack of faith, or their little faith and their lack of prayer, that they were unable to cast the demon out. Whether the disciples had already grown presumptuous in their, in their healing ministry that Jesus had sent them out upon, they'd, they'd already had success in casting out demons. They'd already had success in healing people. They were already kind of forgetting that it's actually not me, it's God doing the work through me, and I need to trust in him by, by prayer and supplication. Instead, they, they grew presumptuous, and so we see once again he reminds them of his authority by, ha- by healing this person. And then he shows his humility. Right after on the heels of showing his authority, he tells them about his own death, about his own sacrificial death that's coming soon. And they obviously don't understand that either. It says in verse 45, but they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And we said, and we can acknowledge that it was concealed from them, seems to refer to God concealing this from them and having a purpose to reveal it to them at a later date. And maybe their understanding would be magnified by seeing his authority and power at his resurrection, being able to respond to that Um, would embolden them for their own ministry in the book of Acts that we see carried out from these same disciples who who make so many mistakes in the ministry of Jesus end up having a very powerful ministry 
throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and the surrounding areas. But the irony here, again, is that they have this argument about their own greatness after Jesus has just talked about his own humility. They proved they didn't grasp what Jesus had taught them. So in our passage this morning, Jesus patiently provides them with yet another example. So before we read it, let's ask him for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this simple example to us. We all need to be reminded of the, the value of the example of children and the humility that, that we see, the, their, their innocence, their, their humble nature. Um, they, they don't have a, really an understanding about how to distinguish one person from another, one who is in an honorable position and one who's not. Yet we do. As adults, we kind of grow up and we begin to despise those who are lower than us and we look up to those who are higher than us and we are filled and puffed up with our own pride and our own ambition to become something, oftentimes something that we're not currently. And so humble us this afternoon by this example in this passage. Teach us even as you taught the disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, sorry, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So greatness in the kingdom of God is, it begins with humility and it grows in humility. Humility is one of the defining characteristics of our walk with God. So I'm just going to look at these in a verse at a time. Verse 46, we see this prideful argument. And according to Mark, the disciples are reluctant to explain to Jesus what they had been arguing about. It seems that Jesus asked them and they didn't want to tell him, even though he already knew. Jesus had to drag their pathetic disagreement into the light. Matthew 18 clarifies that it was specifically regarding their own personal greatness in heaven. They're not necessarily arguing about who's greatest now, who does Jesus love more at this moment, but they're talking about in the kingdom of heaven, and after they die, when, when they go into glory, who's going to have the greatest seat of honor? That's what they're debating. And so they're arguing over who had more claim to greatness. While their master speaks of his own death, they argue about status. The argument seems ludicrous on the surface, and yet we do have to admit that we, we have the same tendency. We are quick to go from places of despair to places of, of expectation to receive, to receive some position or some gift 
as if we've earned it. So we have to admit that we have a bit of this attitude among ourselves. I like what um, Kent Hughes says. He says, why are things so upside down? Consider the difference between dogs and cats. They mas- uh, the master pets a dog and the dog wags its tail and thinks, he must be God. The master pets his cat and the cat purrs, shuts his eyes and thinks to itself, I must be God. After God has graciously reached down to us, there is a perverse human tendency to think like the cat. We all like to think of ourselves as the dog and being surrounded by a bunch of cats, and yet we're prone to think just like this, like the cat. John Calvin said, if the apostles so soon forgot a discourse which they had lately heard, what will become of us if dismissing for a long period meditation on the cross, right? Remember, they had just been told about the cross. They had just been told about Jesus' own suffering. And they're arguing about this. If it could happen to them, if they could so soon forget, Calvin says, dismissing for a long period meditation on the cross, we give ourselves up to indifference and sloth or to idle speculations. The result of forgetting about the cross, forgetting about the suffering of Christ is to fill ourselves with sloth, indifference, and idle speculations. I think we do have that same tendency, right? And the disciples, having spent years walking alongside and sitting under the servant leadership of Jesus, these disciples still had a long way to go. It's obvious. And we all do. And if you don't think so, ask someone else. (laughs) They can obviously see the cat in you more than you can see it yourself. Pride is a deeply rooted sin that plagues us all. And we have no right to claim our own importance, so we should pray for a spirit of humility. We ought to look to the humble example of a child. That's exactly what Jesus does. In verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. He brings this child to his side. It's, we think greatness is supposed to be determined by the company you keep. We surround ourselves with royalty, we'll be treated like royalty. Well, a child was considered the least important in the eyes of society. It was considered a waste of time to associate with children. In fact, there's instruction in the Talmud, from Jewish, Jewish teaching, that, that to waste your time spending it with children rather than, than growing and, and being matured right, in your understanding and knowledge. That was sort of how children were viewed. And it's obvious the disciples had some of that in themselves. Yet Jesus is willing to give this child the best place. He brings that child right to his side. He puts him in a place of honor very clearly. He showed honor to the one society paid the least attention to. According to Matthew, Jesus explicitly told them they needed to become humble just like this child. A child possesses a a simple faith, but it's a genuine faith. We ought to be like the unassuming child who themselves are the epitome of dependence. They are helpless. They need to be taken care of. 
And so that's how we come to Jesus. That's how we receive him, as he'll say later. So you notice how often Jesus is surrounded by children? In the Gospels, it, it happens. In every Gospel, there's, there's several examples of him being around children. Children wanted to be with him. They were drawn to his loving compassion. And it's not hard to see why. He was very outspoken about his appreciation for them. We'll see in the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, to humble the wise and the proud by showing children his grace and giving them knowledge and understanding. Chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus again will say, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. A warning and a rebuke against anyone who would cause children to go astray. Chapter 18, verse 16. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the, little, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs, for to such belongs the children, or the kingdom of God. To children belongs the kingdom of God. So let us not despise children. Let us enjoy their presence. Let us appreciate having children in, in worship, hearing their voices, hearing their noises, we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we become like a child. Children are far from perfect. They're not even perfect in humility. Uh, but they are genuinely, I think the, the point Jesus is making here is that they are genuine, genuinely and generally ignorant of honorary distinctions. A child is not going to treat the president any different than another adult, even if they, they have no idea of that difference. They don't make those distinctions. So a toddler, or a, we should be just like that. Right? That's the, the, the humility that we're called to, where we would not think about status. We'd relate to those of low status, with humility rather than pride? Will we interact with those who have nothing to offer us? In fact, that's maybe the wrong way to ask the question. Because those of no status, very, they have very much to offer you. A reminder of what God has given you. Uh, they can humble you in ways that, that you cannot be humbled if you're not in relationship with them, right? They, they might be poor physically and yet rich emotionally. And the rich oftentimes are very poor spiritually and emotionally. And so we can all in those relationships find ways of relating to one another and benefiting and, and, and relying upon each other. How we receive one another really is, is a recognition of that. It's, it's a recognition that everyone, if, if the lowest is considered great in God's eyes, then, then everyone is on an equal footing 
with God. There is no distinction. When we throw a banquet, do we show hospitality to the poor and the despised, as Jesus calls us to? So he closes with this wise answer in verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus was everything to these disciples, and this child was nothing. But according to Jesus, when they receive the child, they receive him. And so the exalted will be humbled, and the humbled will be exalted. There is no room for, for rivalry among the disciples. Rather than fighting about who deserves honor, our goal ought to be to outdo one another in showing honor, as Paul says in Romans 12. Outdo one another. Be the first to open the door. Fight over who's opening the door for each other. Showing honor. And I know that's what it's going to look like. There's going to be fights about who brings all the tables out and who gets last in line for the food. All right, when you're willing to associate with those who have no status, you prove a humility that is considered great in God's eyes. Again, as Galatians 3 says, we are all one in Christ. So I'll, I'll close with this example. In fact, we sang this, um, his song, Amazing Grace. Many years ago, John Newton, the converted slave trader who became a preacher and a Christian poet, lay upon his deathbed. And a young clergyman came to see him and expressed deep regret at the prospect of losing so eminent a laborer in the Lord's vineyard. And the venerable servant of God replied, true, I'm going on before you, but you'll soon come after me. When you arrive, our friendship will no doubt cause you to inquire for me. But I can tell you already where you'll most likely find me. I'll be sitting at the feet of the thief whom Jesus saved in his dying moments on the cross. He's a, a distinguished man now, Newton felt with Paul, that he could only class himself among the chief of sinners who have been saved through marvelous grace. And so the humility that we, we had to possess when we entered into the kingdom of God is the same humility that is required for us to grow. Greatness in the kingdom of God begins with humility and grows in humility. And of course, the ultimate example of that humility is Christ himself, right? who was born in humble conditions, uh, lived a life of, of ministry where he, he had no bed of his own. And then he gave up his life for us. He who was meek and lowly of heart has set an example for us. Again, greatness is measured by service, as we'll see at the end of this gospel, Luke chapter 22. So our chief shepherd was the servant of all. So let us consider him as we respond now. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this reminder. We thank you for this word. that we, we need to look to children 
as an example for us. We, we want to be examples for our children, and yet, in many ways, they are examples to us. We see their inability to distinguish between those in positions of authority and honor. And we need to have that same kind of ability to, to receive those in a low estate, receive those in humble conditions, and to learn from them ourselves. To not think of ourselves as simply coming to offer and provide for them, but to receive benefit from relating with them as well. Or keep us humble in our associations with others. Let's never be filled with this kind of pride where we would argue about greatness in eternity. To simply be humbled by the one who is truly great and gave it all up for our sake. And let us honor him now in our response, in worship and in our fellowship together. It's in Christ's name we pray.